0: Here, another word of the Lord uh, from Hebrews, uh, the ninth chapter, reading 11 through 15. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, a securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. That is one dense passage. Um, You may be seated. After reading, the word is kind of obvious. It's a good thing to go to prayer. So let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word that speaks in unexpected ways, and we pray that it would speak in unexpected ways this afternoon to us. We thank you that you give us your spirit to apply that word. To work on our own dysfunctions, for all those obstacles that keep us uh, from the the truths uh, so clearly before us. So we pray that you would grant to us a special measure of your grace this afternoon. We are a people in need, we live in the midst of a people in need. We thank you that you give us um, in abundance. Give us eyes to see that abundance. We thank you that you not only have created us, sustain us, but are preparing us even for eternity right now. We thank you that Jesus died on a cross for us, and we pray that that good news uh, might resonate in our own hearts, that you would help us to communicate the goodness of that news to our neighbors, to our families, in a time when it seems uh, so difficult to accept it as good news. Encourage us, uh, challenge us to think more carefully, to communicate more uh, gracefully, uh, to think more about uh, the ways in which uh, those that you've called us to live and work around might not only see in our lives, but hear with our words uh, the good news of Jesus. Us to translate it into the ordinary language of our times by the power of your Spirit. We pray for the witness of uh, many sister churches in our time also. And we are reminded that uh, you call us here this afternoon, this specific place, this concrete time. But around the globe, there are many that we are connected to by faith in Jesus, that also testify uh, to the good news of Jesus. And we pray that you would encourage them across this city and across this country and across the globe. We seem so small as a community here in the Northeast of believers, and yet... The Sovereign Lord is with us and always challenge us to remember that in the midst of difficult times. We pray for those particularly that are suffering in unique ways. Help us to care, uh, to reach out beyond our own comfort zones. comfort those who are mourning, who are victims of injustice and prejudice. May we think not first of ourselves, but of those you've put in our path to seek their good as you have sought us out. May we reflect your grace and your mercy this day, where we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been in the book of Job, if I understand, the sermon series that uh, Bradley and Nate have been working on. Um, And they graciously allowed me to uh, get outside of Job. Uh, And I'm all the way here in Hebrews uh, 11. But there is a lot of connections, and I'm going to try to stress some of those. The experiences of suffering, which are so central to the book of Job, uh, wake us up often from our um, spiritual slumbers. They do that. Uh, They're often misunderstood, and they often lead to ask the question we do deep down in our hearts, Why me, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But suffering also has a way to focus our attention on the things that actually matter. Ultimate things. I remember as a young 30-something pastor, church planter, uh, her name was Deborah. Uh, She had recently come to Jesus. She was passionate about everything uh, um, in the gospel. She had a Husband, kind and gentle soul, but had no interest in religion. Duncan, and two young kids. Deborah also took every theology class I offered at the seminary as well. She she just couldn't. You just meet those people; they just can't absorb enough. And I thought, what's the impact upon her husband? And then, out of the blue, cancer was discovered. Very serious cancer. Um, and we learned three months after I met her that she was dying of cancer. Two young children and an unbelieving husband. I was a young pastor and terribly scared. Never confronted a situation like that. I was really anxious, mostly, of what would happen to Duncan and the two boys. We took her to the grave, and strangely, Duncan committed his life to Jesus. Jesus. Within a week, it didn't make any sense. But I remember as if it was yesterday, he's saying to me, I can't imagine facing my own death, but right now my own life without Jesus. Certain events do that to us, don't they? Not only our own suffering, but as we are in solidarity with those who do suffer. They wake us up, they clarify our eyesight, they shake us to the core. What are you really standing on? I think that's what the book of Job is all about. What what are you really standing on? And sometimes suffering is that means that God uses to wake us up, to ask the questions that we don't often do. There's a general theme that we talk about with suffering, but suffering is never generic. It's never general. You know that well. Suffering somehow connects us in a strange way between time and eternity. And in the Old Testament, the priest, the high priest in particular, was the one that was supposed to do that every uh, time that people gathered. They were to point beyond time to eternity. In some ways, they were the reminder of the meaning of suffering. Now, there are lots of false priests, as we know through the book of Job, so, so to speak, don't we, that misunderstand what we're going through. And we often don't know why we're going through what we go through or those around us. Hebrews 9, this passage we just read, this very dense passage, and apologies for how dense it is and how short uh, the sermon will be relative to how dense it is. It's all about priests. Um, And in our time, it's hard to get that metaphor to come alive. In a place like Boston, inevitably, we think of the abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the language of priests that we know, the connotations that strike us. Our time, though, makes it difficult to understand what a priest does. A, A secular age, as Charles Taylor refers to it, where there is no sacred moral order. Somebody pointing to eternity seems almost irrelevant in a time like ours. Everyone decides good for themselves without a universal moral order. And if you'd like eternity, fine. If you don't, fine. It's a strange reality, isn't it? One of the great ironies, many of the ironies, shall we say, of our time, uh, that believe so deeply and desperately in universal human rights without any moral basis for them whatsoever. Or the, the neighbors that surround you in a place like Newton, and the greater Boston area that work so passionately for justice, and rightly so, but have no moral framework. One of the great ironies. We live in a time of science that tells us to believe in the facts, but don't impose your truth upon me. These are all the ironies that come from a secular age. And... In many ways, it's often the experience of suffering that cuts through those realities. I hope, anyway, that this is the story of the passage. The passage, actually, as does the book of Hebrews more generally, very quickly, is the whole story of the Bible, captured in one book, really captured in this one passage. It's also our story that unfolds here before us. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most stories have that, don't they? In the beginning, the things are. The way they're supposed to be in the middle, most of the Bible, things are not the way they're supposed to be, and then at the end, things work out the way they're supposed to be, but not as expected. It's that unexpected ending uh, that this passage especially points us to. So quickly, the beginning, the middle, and the end, very quickly, the beginning, the way things are supposed to be, God creates us to reflect him. We are mirrors, images, uh, to use the language, out of Genesis. Everything in us was to delight in that which God delights in, to desire what, that which God desires. God was good. He was beautiful. He was true. And that's what was to guide our lives. We were copies of God. We weren't God, but we were copies, representatives, if you will, and in our work, in our relationships, in all of life, we were to reflect God. That doesn't last too long, Those we know. About two chapters in the whole of the Bible, actually. Right? By the time we get to Genesis 3, we're headed down the cliff. The middle, the corruption of the image, if you will, the bulk of the Bible. Mysteriously, the image that you and me begin to live if we are the center and God is peripheral. It's true in every age, but every age has a unique way to say that and to live that out. The image creates images themselves and calls them gods or idols. And we chase after those gods for safety and significance, having left behind the God who made us. That's the story that unfolds here. In the ancient world, those gods were often statues that you brought to the altar. We don't do that so much anymore, at least not in the 21st century here in America. Ours is a time, however, that the gods have expanded exponentially around us. The idols, if you will. Money, power, success, beauty, sex. The list goes on and on. There are as many different kinds of idols as there are different kinds of people, not everybody is the same, but we all do chase after an ins- a significance and a security in ways that we would like to control. Those are our idols, if you will. However, you describe it, a corruption, a dysfunction, a disorder of the human heart has taken place. I'm reminded of the power of living in a world of images, and we live maybe in an age with so many images, it's hard to describe them. I was reading uh, the new biography last summer, actually, of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, has special meaning in our family, in part, we think, because he is a second cousin once removed, or something like that, on my wife's maternal side. So there's some relationship. She grew up with the stories of her grandmother berating... Uh, Ulysses, or something of that sort. He was a drunk, he was corrupt, he was a nasty president. All, all, all the images we lived with uh, across those, uh, that family tree. Well, in the new biography of Ulysses S. Grant, we get a different image of Grant entirely. Very well researched. You, you, may, you may know some of it, but uh, Grant's image uh, historically of being a corrupt president and a drunken president were actually, historically, not very accurate. He was the greatest preserver of Lincoln's legacy of any president that has since lived. He was a champion of civil rights way before civil rights was uh, a common term. He held the union together against all odds by virtue of the power of his moral framework. It's really a remarkable story. Did he struggle with alcohol? Yes. Did he have some corrupt friends? Yes. But we formed an image that has now changed. We do that with each other often. But rare is the fact that we think differently about our own image, our own uh, uh, identity, if you will. And we fail to realize how these images reshape us uh, in their uh, image. Well, on to the main point of this text, the final chapter. The things they're supposed to be, then the way the things are not supposed to be, and finally that unexpected ending. And the first clue uh, here, if you will, across the Bible about the unexpected ending is Abraham, clearly. The beginning of the end happens actually back at the beginning. And with Abraham... um, tries to pass his wife off as a sister uh, who sleeps with a maidservant that is not his wife. Uh, There's lots of indication Abraham has not uh, got strong moral fiber. And so we're expecting if he's going to be reconciled to God, he's got to clean up his act. He has to become, if you will, uh, uh, morally much better than he was. If he's going to negotiate with God, he can't negotiate from a of corruption. But it doesn't happen that way. We know that, right? God does not place obligations on Abraham to be more or do more, to be better or less corrupt. God bears the consequences of Abraham's corruption himself. This is a a story you and I wouldn't write. We, We wouldn't have invented it this way. It's mysterious to Abraham who simply believes God. What we call faith. He trusts in something outside of himself. Because there is no hope, he finally reckons, in himself. The unexpected ending takes place in unique space and place. In unexpected ways, surprisingly... And uh, has enormous implications for us today. Where does it take place? It takes place, as Hebrews 9 reminds us, uh, in the Holy of Holies, a concept that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. Hebrews, in some ways, and just a parenthetical note, is the interpretation of the whole Bible. Caught up in one book. It's a wonderful uh, uh, book in that regard. And beginning with Moses, so we gather in the book of Hebrews, we get a glimpse of this place where time and eternity actually meet. A fusion, if you will, of time itself in a place. God gives to Moses the liturgy of redemption. A kind of fancy way to say a bunch of reminders about how this thing is going to work and where. We have lots of reminders. Memorial Day is a reminder for us of all those who have lost their lives to protect our freedoms. Or Martin Luther King Day to celebrate the remarkable achievements of the Civil Rights Movement. On and on. We have a whole host. Of, we get, uh, once a month we have a reminder day. Right? We have a liturgy, if you will, of celebration. So it is in the time of Israel the Day of Atonement, the 10th day, the 7th month, every year, Yom Kippur, as Jews refer to it. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. He's the only one allowed there. He's got to have a rope around his foot in case he dies in there. Nobody else is allowed in there. And he brings blood, the blood of bulls and goats, an imagery, again, lost on us in the secular age. The Holy of Holies, remember was the place where God was. Now, also, ironically, God's everywhere. But he's uniquely somehow present there. Wrap your head around that one. uh, uh, It'll take a while. The high priest was genuinely in God's presence, much as Moses, when he went up to that mountain, you remember, was with God, but he never saw God. God's mysterious presence filled Mount Sinai. It fills the Holy of Holies. It's the place where God resides. It's the place where the unexpected ending takes place. And in unique among all the religions of the globe, Christianity says that place is not far away. That place has come to us. It is not a journey that we go and find. It is rather a person that has found us. It is not by becoming something we are not so that we are accepted by God. But God has come to us. This is the reality at the heart of the good news that we celebrate here. Deep down, we know no matter how hard we try to be better, we will not finally escape the fragility of feeling insecure and insignificant. We cannot build those ourselves. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much success you have, no matter how beautiful you are, it is fragile. It can be taken away. The unbelievable reality That the Holy of Holies, way back in the book of Exodus, pointed us to. That is here, the heart of this passage, is the reminder that our security and our significance has come to us. And we do not strive after it. How? How does it come to us? Um, The book of Exodus talks about all this bloody stuff, right? Again, in a secular age, it seems almost barbaric. I mean, if you talk to your neighbors who have never darkened the door of a church about bloody sacrifices. A language that seems all too common amongst us Christians. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We say it again and again. It is a speaking of foreign language to our neighbors. It makes no sense. But, of course, it is absolutely central to the narrative of the whole Bible. Why? Well, because blood represented... Life and death. Both. Life and death. And the sacrificing of bloody animals as a substitute was to communicate, was God's way of communicating to His people uh, that life itself was required for punishment through death. But the strange thing is, God provided. An alternative, a sacrifice of something else. Ultimately, we know that pointed to Jesus. We've lost the moral taste bud, as Jonathan Haidt refers to it, of, of actual justice. Uh, mostly in a time like ours, the only taste bud left is what he refers to as the harm and care taste bud. Anything is permissible as long as you don't harm someone else. Justice, on the other hand, is an entirely different kind of moral taste bud that connects uh, behavior with consequences. Um, Actions. Uh, with rewards or punishments, uh, and that relationship is always proportional with justice. Now, I think we talk a lot about justice in our own time, and I think a lot of it is very healthy. Deep down, though, we know justice is not relative. And mercy is not arbitrary. And what the bloody sacrifices did for Israel is to remind them that justice never came to them on their own terms, when they wanted it, how they liked it. Think how graphic that language is in its original context. Bloody sacrifices. It does take your breath away. I remember a while ago, a long while ago, sitting under a tree with some elders in a Small village in southern Zimbabwe, a very traditional village. The male elders gathered around the tree after the ten-hour worship service, uh, and uh, the women prepared uh, the meal. One of the elders motioned to us via the translator to view the dinner preparations. We saw a goat being uh, on a uh, with a rope around his neck. Uh, Uh, And thinking and hoping, uh, I was anyway, that we were having goat's milk for dinner. Um, However, I saw a woman uh, take this goat behind the uh, outdoor kitchen kind of area with a very, very large knife, tied the legs together, and cut the throat. I got sick right on the spot. I wasn't eating dinner that night and probably for several nights after that. I had eaten plenty of meat growing up, but I went to the grocery store to get the meat. Right? Uh, I never so graphically realized that day that an animal killed had to be killed for me to eat. And many of our practices have been sanitized, especially for us city dwellers. If you've grown up in a farm and that's not me, uh, you saw blood all the time. But we don't see blood, except on television where kids see about a dozen murders every single day. It's kind of an irony, isn't it? What seems so barbaric uh, has now become almost routine uh, in our visual uh, consciousness. God has built into us this sense that blood does connote life and death. And points, if you will, beyond itself. The blood of the bulls and the goats was simply a ceremonial cleansing, if you will, as the book of Hebrews here says. If I update the analogy, uh, some of us use church this way. We go for a ceremonial cleansing to save our conscience. And nominal religiosity, the kind I grew up with going to church at Easter and Christmas. Somehow that did something, my parents thought. I'm not sure what, but we live in a time that likes church but just not too much of it, of a sort. Even in the midst of the Roman Catholic scandal over the last two decades, I've met so many former Roman Catholics that defend the church because that's where grandmother still goes. They would never darken the door of a church. But because grandmother goes and she's really nice, we defend it. We want a ceremonial cleansing without the real thing. We don't appear too pagan nor too religious. A strange day we live in. Well, the reality is that we cannot cleanse ourselves. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. That's what uh, the book of Hebrews here is all about. Unexpectedly, if you will, Jesus is the bridge between time and eternity. It's his blood. You know this story if you've been here any length of time. Jesus is the bridge between God uh, and his people, between time and eternity. He is the sacrificial animal, he's the high priest, he's the scapegoat. He puts death itself to death. He puts things right in an unexpected way. He doesn't say, and you echo those words that Abraham heard, be better before you come before God. No, your moral uh, character is not the basis on which you enter into God's presence. It seems almost too good to be true. God declares us to be sin... excuse me, God declares us to be clean even when we are dirty. God sees us through the blood of Christ. And by faith, what we call trust in Jesus is the means that that happens. Now, let me just encourage you that the kind of so what question How do you not simply believe that once and then get over it? How do you, as the book of Revelation says, not let that first love grow cold? Your suffering and those around you who suffer will be powerful reminders of this reality. Find those places where you wake up spiritually. Find places of awe of sacredness, of mysteriousness, where there's an overwhelming mystery. And remind yourself that you're not alone in this very large world. A common phrase in the Lentz household, uh, even to this day, some 20 years after it was first um, brought into being, Uh, on a Friday, we will often say to each other, it's Friday, Eugene. There's no Eugene in our family, actually. uh, So it has nothing to do with uh, uh, our immediate uh, nuclear family. Eugene was a near neighbor, a fifth grader, son of Russian immigrants, uh, and had no friends. Uh, But he was part of our carpool uh, that Ann used to drive uh, several days a week. And Eugene would always sit there in the corner of the car, very glum, rarely ever talked. And my wife, trying to cheer him up, would say, it's Friday, Eugene. It never did much good, but it became symbolic to our family that, that Friday was here. And, and for most of us, we have this rhythm to the week, don't we? Where When Friday comes, we are grateful. It's a powerful reminder of what's happened and what will happen. As we find our rest on the weekend. If it's been a difficult week, we're grateful that it's over. If it's been an especially tumultuous week, we are even more grateful the week is over. God has built in us that rhythm of time. And clearly that evokes memories of another Friday. And somehow we need to see echoes of the grand story of the gospel. In all of life. Even on a Friday when we're thankful the week has come to an end. We're reminded of another Friday when the week was over. When death itself came upon Jesus. As Hebrews 9 narrates, it took place not simply on an ordinary Friday with Eugene in the carpool, but it took place on the plane of eternity. Often... By staring into our own suffering, our own despair, our own circumstances, we know we cannot solve it and we look beyond. Jesus' death somehow strangely puts everything right. And we, we did not work it out. But God worked it out on our behalf. This is a story, if you will, too incredible. And too true, simply to be invented by us. Amen and amen. Um, We turn to the Lord's Supper, I think, next. Uh, A good rhythm, if you will, that reminds us that God is with us. The Holy of Holies now has been opened so that not only the high priest can come, but all of us can come because Jesus has died for us. A message, I don't care how many times you hear it, you need to hear it more and more. A reminder, if you will, that um, Jesus comes to you. It is not you who come to Jesus. It's almost too good to be true. But in the supper here, We are given that reminder, more powerful than merely a memory that will fade as you age, but a concrete reminder that we celebrate every time we gather together. Let me just pray briefly as we set apart these elements